what the fuck database is this thing searching? What information did they have in 1976 that you can just type like, how do I slow aging? Mm. And it's like, eat a fetus. This is missable. Maybe she just went on Google and that was the autofill. Like, <laughs> where do I, where do I find? And then it just filled baby fetuses. fetuses. <laughs> Let's test that now. Uh-huh. <laughs> FBI, open up! Hello and welcome to Cinema Very Gay, the podcast where we talk about the full spectrum of LGBTQIA movies. The good, the bad, the offensive, the Poseidon adventure, but make it snow. I'm your host, Kevin, here with my co-host, Jake, and this week we are still talking about Rock Hudson. We Welcome back. This is Jake. Hi, Kevin here. And this week we are closing out our series on Rock Hudson. That's right. In our first episode, we talked about his work with Douglas Sirk, which kind of got him on the map. And then we talked about his years as sort of the everyman, let's put Rock Hudson in a movie because Rock Hudson's a big name period at Universal. And then we talked about his career renaissance with a bunch of sex farces, particularly the ones with Doris Day. Today, mm-hmm. we are talking about a melange <laughs> of films that he did in his later years of varying quality and budget. <laughs> yes. But before we get into that, be sure to check us out on social media. We're on Twitter at Cinema Very Gay. On Instagram, same thing, and we also have a letterbox and a very gay. And I have a summary for Jake to read. Okay. Sort of a summary. Oh, okay. I get it. We're gonna have to explain this after. Yes. Okay. Here I am. It's me, Rock Hudson, and I'm in the last stage of my career. I've been surreptitiously inserting gay interactions in my movies for years. Did you catch them? Like that time I held eye contact with Tony Curtis for too long, or when I grazed arms with John Wayne, or unbuttoning my shirt an extra button while lounging on the floor in front of a male co-star. Yes, I was pulling the wool over everyone's eyes. Ha, I am the cleverest hunk. Though I am now dead, I leave behind a string of late career movies, some of which people like, but many which are lost to Hollywood history. That's fine with me. It gave me time to focus on my passion for television. After all, I was the star of Macmillan and Wife for eight years in the 1970s. Anyway, I hope you find these later movies of mine as charming as I do. From my dabbles in sci-fi and horror and seconds and embryo to my dalliances with big budget thrillers like Avalanche and Ice Station Zebra. Do you think Avalanche is high budget? No. That was not. (laughs) To the sexy romp that is Pretty Maids all in a row. It is really a shame that I died in 1985, but I'm glad I got to meet the Reagans in the White House in my time. Okay, do you want to explain the joke there? <laughs> yeah, so so there was a movie called Rock Hudson's Home Movies in 1992. It was made by Mark Rappaport. Mark Rappaport. it was 
starring Eric Farr. Eric Farr. Who delivers the, it's a film essay, and he delivers <laughs> yes. his lines in a, in a, a just, monotone. That was spot on, Thank actually, you. for how he delivers every single joke. It's a funny look back on all of Rock Hudson's movies, trying to find all of the gay innuendo and surreptitious gay moments that supposedly Rock had snuck into his movies. And I brought it up because we talked about before, like looking back on the career, especially the sex farces last week, was Rock in on the jokes that were like the gay jokes or was it really just because we're looking back and we know he's gay now that things were, things seem funnier than they may actually have been, or there's a different layer of comedy to it. It's just like an hour of edited movies. It's like, we, we won't talk about it much on this episode, but it's just, it's a funny look back on Rock mm-hmm. Hudson's career. So yeah, we're now in the 60s. The first one is, yeah, 1966. Um, so we're coming out of the sex farce years. I think we're last coming week, out of Universal. None of these movies and, yeah, are and, Universal films. I know I said last week that his career sort of just like, slows down and i think you rightly said his career is just doing what a lot of other hollywood leading men's careers do which is they just become more varied and there are directors that know how to use rock and those that don't but it is interesting that in the 60s through the end of his career his films like were really more varied Mm -hmm. there were a lot of genre movies that he was trying and he did slow down a bit because he was bigger on tv like by the time he got into the 70s but yeah i found this like a really interesting 18 or 20 year span uh, yeah of his filmography some of it i think really worked he experimented a lot he experimented a lot yeah and it it is still interesting that through all of it he's still sort of cast almost all the way like through the end of his career as like leading man like he is a headliner like he's still a box office draw for all of these movies regardless of if it's like a sci-fi or a drama or somewhat of a musical although in some cases he's a draw in the sense that it is a very low budget movie (laughs) and we need to get an actor who we can afford whose name we can put at Uh the head of the marquee and well we can't afford a really big name so let's get rock hudson because people remember him there's a bit of um what felt like edward bella lugosi casting yes i can <laughs> i can see that yeah that's that is true but yeah there were there were a few of these i mean most of them are really fun to watch because it was so different from anything that we've talked about that mm-hmm. he's done but there is still there's still a modicum of crap, crap! like yeah. there's some there's some schlock there's some sh- yeah yeah, what was your favorite? Um, I think the, I, I think the best one is Seconds, which I is the first one we're going to talk about. Yeah, I, th- there were some other ones that I I liked, and I will say out of the ones I watched, the quality was overall higher than any of the just kind of westerns or like factory line things that came out during the fifties. Like, right, there was no like taza in this or lawless breed or just something where i was just sitting there except for maybe ice station zebra i was pretty bored but there are some things to recommend about it right we'll get into that but seconds came out in 1966 so rock hudson doesn't actually show up until like 40 minutes into the movie yeah it so it's a i guess i would call it sci-fi horror 
Yeah, it's kind of like I would say it's like a Twilight Zone episode. It a does feel bit, like, but, yeah, it does feel like a Twilight Zone, but with better. It's got really cool cinematography and editing. It was probably I think it. I mean, it, it was weird to see a Rock Hudson movie with like handheld camera work. Yes, the plot of this movie is really cool. It's like there's like a secret agency that fakes people's deaths and then gives them entirely new identities and faces. And a man gets a mysterious phone call from an old friend that he thought was dead and he just gets like swept up in this agency and yeah so arthur is a he's like a married middle-aged banker Mm -hmm. with a wife and daughter and house in the suburbs and he basically agrees to get this surgery to disappear and start a new life he has a decent life he's just kind of bored like this Mm -hmm. movie's clearly got themes about dissatisfaction with the american dream Mm -hmm. i guess Mm -hmm. and it is pretty unnerving i thought it's very i thought very unsettling i don't want to spoil the ending um because if you haven't seen it you should watch it but the ending is genuinely viscerally scary it's upsetting yeah part of that too is hudson's performance at the end he gives a really good performance Mm -hmm. and his performance paired with the editing and stuff like that is just very scary and what's happening is very scary too agreed i did write it it does feel like a Twilight Zone episode, but it was cool to see Rock doing this because it's such a departure from anything that we have talked about mm-hmm. that he's been in. He has to play like lost and confused, drunk. Like there's a lot of intense close-ups of him being really emotional, and there's it's, it is a cinematography, but there's just this sense of unease and dread throughout the movie. Uh, yeah. It was reminding me of like a tarkovsky movie i wrote down where it's just like Mm -hmm. i don't know there's like shots of long hallways or him running around trying to find his way out of an office building that seems endless yeah it's just like it it reminded me a little bit of the trial actually the orson welles movie at at times too especially the first 40 minutes or so before the surgery it very it's very much like he doesn't under quite understand what's happening and people are kind of acting because he wants the surgery but they're also blackmailing him to get the surgery Mm -hmm. and he's fairly easily easily blackmailed because i think at the end of the day his character is dissatisfied but Mm -hmm. he has these apprehensions and they're like well we're blackmailing you so you have to do this now Mm -hmm. that sort of outside force acting upon him reminds me a lot of the trial Mm -hmm. and it's very like labyrinthine navigating that world and just very claustrophobic Mm -hmm. yep I very highly recommend this one. I think this was of everything that I that we've watched of Rock Hudson's movies, just mm-hmm. like holistically over the course of this miniseries. This is one. This is one of my like favorites. It's yeah, like a pleasant surprise. That was really cool. And then there's like a really like a bacchanal mm-hmm. scene of like him going off into the woods. They're like stomping on grapes. And also, the scene was almost entirely... We, we saw the, the full scene, but it was almost entirely cut from the domestic release of the movie because it was... Because it's... Yeah. The nudity. There was nudity. You could see actual boobies in some some shots. It was also Gamers. Rock Hudson getting into a, a vat yeah. of grapes yeah. with a bunch of naked revelers. Yeah. So it's basically an orgy. On the heels of <laughs> Send Me No Flowers. This, this <laughs> yeah. is two years after Send Me No Flowers, so it's a real change it's up It's a tough, tough sell. There was a lot of risque sexual content in a lot of these movies Mm -hmm. 
was, yeah, interesting. Yeah. That he did that later in his career. I, yeah, it is interesting. Uh, you know, that's kind of where Hollywood was heading. He, he, was, he definitely that's wasn't true. on the vanguard of New Hollywood by any means, but <laughs> no. he... Uh, so, so seconds did not do well at the box office. It made 1.75 million domestically, which is nothing compared to what he was making with the Doris Day movies. Right. It was the U.S. Of, official U.S. entry into Cannes that year. Really, that's cool. And the French booed it. <laughs> really? Yeah, they did not like it. Why? I don't think that... this, this movie was very well received at the time. It's it's gone huh. on to be well received, especially as part of this was part of Frankenheimer's paranoia trilogy is what i think it's called and mm. it was this the mentoring candidate and one other one which i can't remember off the top of my head but i think it's seen as like of a kind with these classics about paranoia in uh-huh. america during like the silent generation years the post-war years huh that's really interesting that's like i i really just don't hear much about this movie so it is kind of surprising that it wouldn't have been critically well received in its time especially in like a an international audience that that just seems strange to me because it does feel you're right it's, it feels very much like an orson welles movie mm-hmm. which they would have loved yeah i don't know cool but it's definitely I, got a good reputation now yeah i very strongly recommend finding this one yeah so that happened also in 1966 hudson parted ways from henry wilson his agent slash um, groomer groomer and the next movie, so we didn't watch all of the movies in his later career. I couldn't watch any, I didn't no. want to watch any more boring Westerns. So we skipped most of those. <laughs> there was one called Man's Favorite Sport, which we didn't watch, which is about him learning how to fish, I guess. Mm. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. So the next one, um, after Seconds, the same year as Seconds, uh, 1966, was a movie called Blindfold. And I watched this one. Yeah, I didn't watch this one. Um, missable. I would say, which was too bad because it started off really interesting and then became just sort of a generic, I I don't know what it was trying to be, thriller, I guess, drama, drama thriller. Um, But he plays Dr. Bartholomew Snow, which I kind of love, Mm -hmm. um, who's a psychiatrist who gets roped into a secretive treatment for a patient, a former patient of his that's being held by the NSA. And he's being held in a secret location and all... Dr. Snow knows is that he goes to a private jet and then has to put on a blindfold so he doesn't know where he's flying and he puts on a blindfold until he is in front of the patient. It's like, as a premise, like, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some good mystery here and it's like, what are they holding him for? What secrets does he know? But then it just sort of, it takes this turn and Claudia Cardinal, Cardinale, mm. you know, she comes in as the patient's sister who's looking for her missing brother and suspects that Dr. Snow knows where he is and was like involved in the kidnapping. And was like, that's also really interesting. But as soon as she's brought into it, it becomes like a romance and there's like comedy beats. Yeah. To oh, it. this was a universal picture. So it was probably his last with universal then. Possibly. <laughs> yeah. It felt like the romance angle just didn't fit. Like it was, it, it was really cool as just like a mystery thriller. And I was thinking like, oh, this this seems like something like Denis Villeneuve would remake and it would look really cool. And it was reminiscent of like the conversation a little bit in like some of its pacing at the beginning. Um, like the Coppola movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought it was, I thought it was interesting, but then it was just like, I got, you get to the end and it's like a lot of time was spent on the 
comedy and the romance and it just started distracting from the mystery. So the payoff was just okay for me. It's like not Hudson's best, not his worst. Solid. Fine. Yeah. That's all. Okay. That's blindfold. And then the next one, I Station Zebra, <laughs> which I think if Pillow Talk's the one you're going to watch with your mom, like the Rock Hudson movie you're going to watch with your mom, I Station Zebra's probably the one what, you're going to watch with your, your dad. granddad. Or your granddad, yeah. MGM movie directed by John Sturgis, who also yep. did The Great Escape, which your dad also loves. Yes. And stars uh, Ernest Borgnine, who your granddad also loves. Uh, My granddad actually looks like Ernest Borgnine. My dad sort of looks like Ernest Borgnine. Huh. The magic card! <laughs> signal! Come, young ward! Um, <laughs> you old coot. It's, it's, a, it's a submarine movie, so, you know, dads love submarine movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's not good. <laughs> no. It was shot in 70 millimeter, so some of it looked Some of really it looked good. really cool. None of the scenes... Of the Arctic ice look good. No, this looked like a soundstage. Um, and also, it didn't look cold. There was no there was no cold breath. No. It's just wind sound effect. Yes. But everything of the submarine, like below the ice, looked really good. Mm-hmm. And the shots in the submarine looks pretty good. Yeah. But it, it just becomes like general, I don't know, schlocky thriller. Which makes sense. It was, it's like typical... Yeah. man role for him it revolves around like a cold war MacGuffin that mm-hmm. we find out about in a massive exposition dump that lasts like 40 minutes oh my god they really should they should have spread that out yeah um hudson plays one of his blandest characters there's really nothing to him yeah uh music by michelle legrand oh the score was good yeah and er- I- ernest borgnine i thought was interesting casting as like a soviet double agent yeah, I don't. Have, yeah, I don't have that much to say about. Yeah, it was interesting. Like this wasn't well received at the time, rightfully so, I think. But MGM pulled 2001 from theaters mm-hmm. to put Ice Station Zebra in theaters, which is patently a worse movie and also looks horrible <laughs> in comparison to 2001. Like some of the effects from 2001, and it was like such a flop was like so poorly received the chairman of ngn like there are other reasons but the chairman ended up resigning shortly after this was released because he couldn't recoup the losses from this movie yeah the only other thing i have to say about this movie so gregory peck was supposed to be the rock hudson character initially and the department of defense who obviously got final say on this movie because of course they did objected to the original screenplay and I found this out while because I was kind of I was like bored watching the movie and I was like just looking at on Wikipedia and it said like the entire first screenplay was thrown out because the Department of Defense rejected it. And I was like, I finished the movie and I was like, I bet because Ernest Borgnine, the Russian, mm-hmm. turns out to be a double agent, mm-hmm. which is the most obvious thing you could do in the movie. Right. But I, I was like, I bet in the original movie, one of the American characters turned out to be a double agent and the DOD was like, no. There's no such thing. Uh-huh. You know, no American would ever defect. We can't have this in a movie. And I was right. Hudson's character in the original screenplay was a communist double agent. And I, I'm guessing the Department oh. of Defense was like, no, no. That would have been so much more interesting. Yeah, but it also would have made it look like there are communists in the American spy system. It was Patty Chayefsky who wrote the original screenplay. So he, I, it was probably a, a better screenplay. It but probably was. It yeah. was uh, since they needed 
the sign off of the Department of Defense to use some of the military equipment. Damn. Um, it got watered down a lot. That's why your dad loves it. True. Man, real shame. Felt like it felt like watching a like mediocre Bond movie, but with even worse action. Mm-hmm. And nothing funny. No. Wasn't it wasn't good. But yeah, I'll take uh I'll take Operation Petticoat as far as submarine movies over this at any time, which Speaking of Blake Edwards, Paramount Pictures lovingly brings you Julie Andrews as Darling Lily in the high-steppingest, happiest musical of the 70s. Julie Andrews is Lily, and Lily is everybody's darling. It all adds up to entertainment for the entire family as Paramount Pictures lovingly brings you Darling Julie as Darling Lily. Um, the next one we watched was uh, Darling Lily. Oh boy. A Blake Edwards movie which, oh with Paramount. Oh boy. I'll, I'll set this up. So the movie stars Rock Hudson and Julie Andrews. And Julie Andrews, when the movie went into production in 1968, was, I think except for John Wayne, the most money-making star on the planet. Mm, she had done Thoroughly Modern Millie at Fox. Mm-hmm. She had done Mary, Mary Poppins, Poppins at Disney. And Sound she had done Sound of Music at, uh, I don't know what studio. They, they, were, they, they were like mm-hmm. three different studios. So like Julie Andrews was kind of going around making like huge blockbusters for yeah. different studios. And so Paramount was like, we need Julie Andrews for a movie. <laughs> and she was dating Blake Edwards, the director. I think they might've been engaged at that point. And so to kind of sweeten the deal, they gave Blake Edwards carte blanche to oh. make this movie about Julie Andrews playing a spy for Germany during World War One. Right. And I think on paper, they probably thought they were going to get a historical drama prestige movie Mm -hmm. but what they got was a blake edwards movie (laughs) which you said you didn't you didn't like this movie right no you can tell okay i think the oh and it was written by william peter blatty the guy right the the guy wrote the exorcist (laughs) And, and okay so it does feel like just a car crash between what you said of like on paper this is supposed to be like a story about like a mata hari character and then also a blake edwards movie and then just like smush smush them together like two different colors of play-doh and you end up with i i just like something that just does not work for me yes if you are a blake edwards fan you will enjoy this movie because it is it's just very blake edwardsy it's very (laughs) it's it's slapsticky it's too long it (laughs) is more concerned with it it has a plot but it's way more concerned with situations than the plot yeah. And so you get stuck in scenes that go on for a really long time to Ugh. kind of build out gags. But I also think like... If it's not like, one of his better movies. No, but if you like Blake Edwards movies, I don't necessarily think you'll like this because it is like doing Blake Edwards things, but then not enough. It's just interspersed with like long segments of nothing really happening. Yeah. It's like the slapstick moments will happen or like Julie Andrews will have a funny line or crepe, and then nothing or crepe Suzette or crepe Suzette. I love that, crepe. See that one was funny. Yeah. But it's like, it, there's that, but it, that takes like 20 minutes to build up to and explain. And then the payoff is like nothing. Yeah. And then you just move on. Yes. 
I, it, this it it just was disjointed for me. Yeah, it's it is very disjointed. Um, so Blake Edwards later, if you've ever seen Sob, that is a movie that is satirizing the production of this movie because the studio got their Blake Edwards movie and were like, "What the hell is this?" And mm-hmm. so there was a big back and forth with the studio. There was union trouble. There was tabloid drama. The shoot went on too long, and so you can tell yeah, the movie's very disjointed. Yeah, I would say one of the biggest problems with the movie is that. They needed to do a better job of, or I kind of wish that they had played up some sort of contrast between Julie Andrews's public persona and her private persona, because mm-hmm. she's supposed to be like her public persona is this sort of very popular English musical actress, mm-hmm. and she doesn't act that different. Even though she's a spy for the for Germans, German. yeah. she doesn't act differently in private, which is kind of weird. Yeah, and she doesn't speak German. Yeah, it's. I would say this movie. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. No. Parts of it. It is very interesting as a historical artifact mm-hmm. because because the movie came out right at the time New Hollywood was coming into its own, mm-hmm. and when old Hollywood musicals were on the on its way out, mm-hmm. and not only that, but the movie it finished production in 1968, but then it took two years for it to come out because of all the stuff that was happening behind the scenes, and yeah. by then. Musicals were like dead, dead. Like Hello Dolly had come out. It did terribly. Mm-hmm. Um, Easy Rider was came out. Midnight sure. Cowboys. So I'm sure by 1970, this felt like an artifact of a yeah. different time already. It really was just like lifting pieces from like copying and pasting pieces from those musicals in very uninteresting ways. Like the there were there were like direct homages to Mary Poppins. And the opening scene was Funny Girl. The, the other opening funny girl. scene is Funny Girl and closing scene. Yeah. And like there and the is... Movie, the movie also should have ended a scene earlier. Yeah, there are too many like it, layers of double crosses and like deceptions. and yeah. Then... yeah, it should have ended with Julie Andrews standing in that field while Rock Hudson flies away. Yeah. Spoiler. Whatever. Again, but not really because... But again, it's... Blake Edwards does not care about the plot of no. this movie at all. Yeah, I think there, there was a director's cut that was... Released in 1992, it was 28 minutes shorter, and I wonder if that that might be better helps. Yeah, because this is like a two and a half hour movie that there's just like extended, prolonged, like shots of flying and the dog fights. That why are we in the sky so much? Because it's a Blake Edwards. I know, I know. Have that's you, the answer. Have you ever I seen? Know that's the answer. Have you ever seen the Great Race? He just likes slapsticky chase scenes and stuff like that. And the, the most- also the great the Great Race. It's like three hours long. Oh, jeez. I love it. There's like, there's that horrible, horrible scene, like what you're saying of just like situations being played for laughs where the like German, oh, no, 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 no. It's the, the British intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, Alan Yard is looking. Scotland Yard? Wait, did you say Alan Yard? Yeah. What's Alan Yard? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Scotland Yard. Whatever. MI MI five or whatever. I don't know. Something like that. Some some spy secret agency thing. It was like spying on her through the windows to see what <laughs> yeah. she was doing with Rock Hudson. See, I like that stuff. I know, but it's like that's <laughs> fine, that's funny. And it was like, oh, this is this is a funny thing. But then fifteen minutes later, it's the same <laughs> thing still happening. Like we're in Rock and Julie just like keep getting in and out of bed. Yep. They keep looking in the window, which I don't know how they weren't seen or heard. Just like faces pressed against the window during this sex scene where there's like no chemistry between 
Hudson and Andrews. Mm-hmm. Like, like, just tapping my watch. Like, yeah, we gotta, we gotta move. We we gotta do the next thing. This was this was a weird one. And she is she is not sympathetic. Julie Andrews. Yeah, the character. It's weird that you're like rooting for her. At least I got the sense that you were. Well, it's a Blake Edwards movie. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I found that's it. Our, I, that, I get it. I get is, it. That is our conclusion. It is a Blake Edwards movie. I get it. But if you want to, I mean, there some there were some good songs. You got nominated for one of the songs, the opening one. I like that song. Yeah, it, like that was good. Although the main, like, did you the main theme of the movie? It sounded like Feed the Birds. Yes, I like. Did you notice that? Copied and pasted yeah, bits from Mary Poppins. Darling Lily. Uh, we're going to move into another weird move in 1971 with the movie Pretty Maids All in a Row. What do you think of this one? Uh, it's kind of gross. It's I'd, very bad. And it's an interesting movie. It was it was the American, uh, the first American movie that Roger Vadim mm-hmm. did. So the former Mr. Jane Fonda. Yeah. So the the way the movie is directed is not surprising, considering the director, because he's a perv. Mm-hmm. And so did, the did he do Barbarella? He did Barbarella, yeah. and he um he is a very pervy director, and so mm-hmm. there's a lot of you know upskirting and boobs and stuff like that of teens. Yeah, teenagers. But it was written by Gene Roddenberry. And it was his only screenplay who is most famous for the original Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And the movie is clearly the screenplay is trying to be a satire about how the sexual revolution has sort of curdled Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the 70s. And Rock Hudson's character, Tiger, Mm -hmm. is he's basically a. He's like a parody of like the all-American male. He's a guidance counselor. He's a father. He's a veteran. He's a football coach. He's a cheating husband. Um, the screenplay takes all of that and is like he's actually using his position to sleep with teenage girls and murder people. Mm-hmm. But the adaptation of it from the screenplay to the movie is confused and mm-hmm. cheap it doesn't feel like it there's any irony to it it just feels like the yeah. thing it's trying to yeah but you can see moments on. where like there's that part where the cop comes in and stops the black student and is like mm-hmm. and assumes that the black student is why he was called in and uh-huh. they're like there's a murder <laughs> yeah like and, there's a dead body in the bathroom and there are other things like that where it's clearly there's supposed to be social commentary in this about the way <laughs> black people are treated and the way men take advantage of women Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But it's so lost. So much of it is lost in translation. 
yeah, this doesn't, it doesn't work. There's, it's just way he's like sleeping with students. There's way too much focus on that. Yeah. And our, our main character is this kid named Ponce who is like suffering from being a virgin, very inconvenient priapism. And also who apparently doesn't masturbate like the, I, I don't know. I don't know. It was, it was so like, he, he always has a boner, but he like, and he like needs to get with a woman, but like, I don't get, I don't get it. It's very and confusing. Then Angie Dickinson is a new teacher that she, she's not into Rock Hudson's character, Tiger McDrew, mm-hmm. but then she sort of is, but then Tiger convinces Angie Dickinson to seduce and sleep with Ponce. And then, so she does. And it's like, her character what? is very confusing. Oh, that, it's just upsetting. And then she, I was like, is she here to like be a foil to Rock or like uncover the truth about him being the killer? Like, no. But this is an interesting movie for Rock Hudson to do because he, I think, is this the only movie we've watched where he plays a villain? I think it is. You could maybe argue in Avalanche that he would be a villain ish we'll get to but i think this is the only one where he's unambiguously a villain Mm -hmm. it's an it was it's an interesting change of pace for him i think he fits very well into a 70s uh aesthetic look yeah he's got the the tight pants and the mustache and he pulls that off pretty well yeah if this was more of just like a beach blanket bingo kind of just romp and he was just like this manly man football coach like that that could have just been funny on its own like yeah. that could have worked but trying to do way too many things i think if they hadn't hired a pervert to shoot a satire mm-hmm. it might have come out a little better but oops this movie was also clearly like made for nothing it has it a lot so of cheap. it has a lot of great low budget amateur movie tropes in it it's got you know bad sound design it's got continuity errors mm-hmm. there was one part where so like Angie Dickinson's character, Miss Smith, uh, she invites Ponce over for confusing reasons. And there's like a Hieronymus Bosch painting in her living room. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why is this there? And then I I was like, oh, it's because this is just some random person's house that they got for cheap that they didn't get the approval to move anything. Yep. They're like, yeah, it was like someone who was like. Yeah, I'll give you my house for the afternoon, but you're not allowed to touch anything. Yep. <laughs> so there's just a Hieronymus Bosch painting like, in there. Yeah, I got to get in, get out. Yeah, and there was at least one and like and action shot where the editing, they cut too early, and so you see everyone standing in the hallway, and uh-huh. then clearly the director was like, and action, and yep. then everyone and then starts start moving. moving. <laughs> so, That's right. That was fun. I also, I, I thought it was kind of funny that he tries to murder suicide Ponce at the end, because Ponce catches on and mm-hmm. he just dies. No, Ponce. he escapes. To, he escapes to Brazil. Oh, that's right. So he fails that. And then Ponce and Miss Smith become sexual predators. Hooray! The end. Okay, we should stop with this movie. Yeah, this is bad. So don't watch that one unless you want to. Unless you want to, but it was interesting. Yeah, I also would say don't watch the next one unless this is your like. If this is your kind of movie, then you might find some some value in this. But 1976, he did a horror movie called embryo and again with roddy mcdowell was in this diane oh, yeah, roddy was mcdowell was also in pretty maids yep all in a row um he's cute he's cute but and uh barbara carrera is an embryo who i guess was baba carrera <laughs> becoming like a sex symbol 
in the 70s. What is Embryo about? I didn't watch this one either. <sighs> it's about... Okay, here we go. So he is a scientist. He's a geneticist. And he's he uncovers a method of speeding up the development process for an embryo, a human embryo in secret. It turns into Barbara Carrera. Also, these embryos that develop learn really quickly and are hyper-intelligent, but also their bodies decay quickly. Like there's a drug that she can take that will slow the aging process. So she becomes addicted to that drug while she's being hyper-intelligent. But then she also finds that the drug comes from what is it or human fetuses that are like five to six months in development it's the only way to get more of it so it's like stem cells or something yeah but that means she has to go and find stem cells and inject herself with them so she just sort of becomes a mad science experiment okay. not wrong so it's like, like a frankenstein movie yeah but of? just like not good okay yeah i don't know if it was the copy that i was watching online it was like on youtube or something because it's in public domain but it just looked so cheap and he's like i don't know what psycho just has like a full genetics lab in his house like he just works out of his house like dexter's laboratory yes <laughs> yeah but as like a creepy adult man and i'm sure dexter would have grown up into a creepy adult man. yeah this is what he would have become and then he he also like hit a dog part of the experiment is that he does it to a dog first. Does the experiment on a dog first, and then the dog becomes hyperviolent. It's a Doberman. So somehow he's also like a vet. He's also like a surgeon. Oh yeah. I don't know. This is this is wacky. Um, Barbara Carrera's acting is terrible. If she's so smart, I don't know how she couldn't get away with crimes better. Like she was bad at crimes for someone that like learned chess by watching a guy play a game and then beat some world master yeah well i mean true crime podcasts weren't as much of a thing so maybe she didn't have a chance to learn that much that's fair the end was interesting as like a sci-fi for like a sci-fi movie where turns out that she is pregnant and like because she's developing so quickly like gives birth really quickly also and he, he was trying to destroy her but she gives birth and then it ends okay interesting but kind of bleak diane ladd was interesting there's also a weird thing where there's like some computer i couldn't wrap my head around this and tried to look this up but it's 1976 and the embryo woman embryo girl barbara's barbara's <laughs> character is like she's trying, a, she's an embryo lady she's, yeah she's an embryo lady now and she's trying to figure out a way to slow her aging so she goes to some computer and I, I have no idea what database this is searching, but she like goes in and types some question in some computer and it prints out the name of this drug and where to get it or the name of this chemical and says from fetuses five to six months. I'm like, what the fuck database is this thing searching? What information did they have in 1976 that you can just type like, how do I slow aging? Mm. And it's like, eat a fetus. This is missable. Maybe she just went on Google and that was the autofill. Like, <laughs> where do where do I find? And then it just filled baby fetuses. fetuses. <laughs> Let's test that now. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, that's Embryo. What's next? Ah, <laughs> uh, ooh. So okay. So t- it's, speaking of B movies, it's 1978. 
Oh God. So four years ago, actually six years ago, the Poseidon Adventure came out. Mm -hmm. Four years ago, both Towering Inferno and Earthquake Mm -hmm. came out. Huge movies. And Roger Corman, who is a auteur of shitty (laughs) movies uh, that ride trends, I would say. I have a list here of some of the movies he was making. So things like, you know, in the 50s, you had your B-movies like uh, the like B monster movies and sci-fi movies. So he was Mm -hmm. making, you know, swamp woman. And instead of the day, the world and the day, the world stood still, he made the day, the world ended (laughs) and, you know, attack Attack of the crab crab monsters. monsters. (laughs) It's great. Uh, Not of this earth. Yeah. A movie called the saga of the Viking woman and their voyage to the waters of the great sea serpent, which I kind of want to watch that ski troop attack. I'm Troy McClure, star of such films as P is for Psycho and The President's Neck is Missing. Oh, The Mask of the Red Death. That was a good movie, actually. I like that one. But anyway, so he, Roger Corman was like, we need to make a disaster movie to cash in on this trend, even though it's been a couple years. Uh-huh. And that's how Avalanche came about, which we did <laughs> not watch. We did not watch Avalanche, Avalanche. We watched the MST3K version, Mystery Science. I watched both. Oh, you watched both? Yeah. I, oh, I went wait. back and watched the Mystery Science Theater version. I went and fast-forwarded through the Avalanche one because I was like, I'm pretty sure they cut out some sex scenes. And yes. This, and they did. Yes, they did. So the MST3K one is the whole movie minus boobs. Boy, this one's interesting. Yeah. It's probably Hudson's best worst movie. Pretty This and Pretty hmm. Maids, I would say, are... Like if you're gonna get a bunch of friends together to watch a like have sh- bad movie night, uh-huh. you put on Avalanche Not, or Pretty Maids. Yeah, I can see that. That's a good argument. Like this is, Rock is a he's opening a ski resort, but the thing is the EPA or like Fish and Wildlife or I don't know I don't Land know. Federal Bureau of Land Management said like you shouldn't build here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ground's not stable. Mm-hmm. Like, don't do it. But he did it anyway because money, capitalism, capitalist greed. And so there's just like setup upon setup upon setup upon setup that, hey, you probably shouldn't do this. There could be an avalanche. Yes. Which doesn't appear until very deep into the movie. 56 minutes into a 93 minute movie. Yeah. Is when the avalanche, the titular avalanche of avalanche happens. Yeah. It co-stars Mia Farrow oh. as Hudson's ex-wife, and they have negative chemistry. Negative chemistry. <laughs> Mia, Mia Farrow is terrible in this, but like nobody, no one's good in no this. One's, no one's good in this. Uh, Robert Forster, maybe little baby Robert Forrester. Um, and yeah, the dialogue's terrible. It has again, it has so many wonderful amateur movie tropes, like amateur cheap movie tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, Rock Hudson's mom hits her mic. <laughs> Did you notice yes. that? <laughs> it just it's left in the movie. There's bad ADR, there's bad editing, there's stock footage, yep. there's cheap props. Very cheap. Or I guess like uncreative cheap props, like so much of the snow is just clearly card or not styrofoam. Card, styrofoam. Yeah. Uh, like like chunks of it. Giant chunks of styrofoam. <laughs> there's a dancing scene and the music that they used on set is clearly not the same as the music they use in the final cut because no one looks like they're dancing to the music. 
It's another it's another cold movie where you can tell that no one is actually cold. Yeah, same like, th- yeah. There's the the sex scene that gets cut or one of the sex scenes that gets cut. There's a a woman like in basically a negligee that runs out yeah, I did of see her little chalet or of her little ski lodge room into the snow and she's barefoot and there's like a blizzard happening. Yeah. She seems fine. I mean, she's fact, crying. She's, but, she's crying. Yeah. Well, yeah, she's emotionally distraught. I, I also just this this avalanche when it happens looks looks so terrible. But then I'm sitting there wondering, like, how did it sneak up on so many people? So many people died. How do you not know this is coming? There's like, oh, I guess there was there was something about like the warning system being down or telephone lines were down. But still, like, you could hear an avalanche. Oh my goodness. And then the his poor mother is like trapped in snow <laughs> for poor horny mother. <laughs> oh yeah, she's Randy. <laughs> and she's trapped for hours and then has hypothermia and then gets pulled out and rescued and then put in an ambulance. But then the ambulance falls off a bridge and she explodes <gasps> in a oh, car crash. Yeah, that seemed like, that was so mean. For <laughs> yeah, why did the mom have to explode? Oh my gosh. And but it was, it was sort of like, you know, Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno work because there's like there is one clear goal. There's like one place you are trying to escape. You know the stakes. There's an element of time that makes it really stressful. This is just like the avalanche happens and then you're either dead or you're what trying to get off the mountain. And so they they keep like trying to come up with horrible things that continue to trap people that really make no sense like a bridge falls down or like an ambulance crashes oh no so now there's car crashes too and the weather doesn't seem that bad like after the avalanche happened like no it seemed fine like just go down the mountain yeah or just just like wait for rescue yeah i don't know this was this was i would recommend either watching the mst3k episode because it is funny it's pretty or you know having some friends over and shitting on the movie or just shit on the movie while watching the MS, yeah. MST version. Like, and this is where the avalanche will go. Yeah. <laughs> Boob jokes here. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, moving Part. on. The Mirror Cracked. I do need to watch this. This one I actually would recommend. Okay. This is a adaptation of a Miss um, Marple Agatha Christie story. And it is directed by Guy Hamilton, and the co-screenwriter was Barry Sandler, who also wrote Making Love, the mm. Michael Otkian and um, Harry Hamlin mm-hmm. movie that was like one of the first mainstream. My husband, Harry Hamlin. Ha- Harry Hamlin, if you met. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it gets Hudson and Taylor back together, Hudson and Elizabeth Taylor in the movie mm-hmm. together. There's a wonderful scene where Liz Taylor and Kim Novak play two actresses who hate one another. And there's a great scene where they just read each other for like three minutes. You know the saying, once an actress, always an actress. Oh, I do know the saying. But what does it have to do with you? Cute angel. So do tell, how does it feel to be back after being away so long? What are you supposed to be, a birthday cake? Too bad everybody's had a piece. Right, can we have a big smile for these ladies? Chin up, darling. Both of them. I feel like thinking of this movie, like what it's known for now, is just the like supreme bitchiness between them. Yeah. And just like the snippets of it's like, not cattiness. Yeah, it's not like the 
the bulk of the movie, but it is in there and it's, you know, it's fun. It, it moves at a decent pace. There was one joke where Elizabeth Taylor is looking at herself in the mirror and she goes, bags, bags, go away. Come right back on Doris day. And then it like cuts to rock cuts and being oh. like, Oh, uh, and so, uh. <laughs> and baby Pierce Brosnan shows up for oh, a scene. And that's it's nice. In a credited role. He's very cute. So that's that. I'd recommend it is a British movie released by EMI. And then, Rock Hudson's final movie yeah. was a film with Robert Mitchum and Ellen Bernson called The Ambassador. And um, Donald Pleasance. That was uh, released by MGM in the United States, but was a Israeli production. It was two Israeli moguls who mm-hmm. co-produced it. And it's, it's about uh, Robert Mitchum plays an ambassador mm-hmm. who is trying to negotiate peace between the PLO and Israel. Mm-hmm. And given that it is produced by two Israeli dudes, mm-hmm. it's not the most propaganda-y thing. It basically ends on a <laughs> it ends on a note of like it's both sides' fault, but also it's kind of more but the PLO's it's fault. Mostly the PLO's fault. Because it was Which is about what you would expect from a movie like this. It's true. But the, it's also like felt like weird u.s propaganda of like just playing the peacekeepers mm-hmm. in this i was like mm, they probably want to sell it to a u.s market <laughs> yeah it's like i don't think that's totally right I, although you know what to be fair robert mitchum is the ambassador wants to and rock hudson plays his head of security head of security like mitchum wants to negotiate this peace deal but it's very clear that his agency and like potentially the president and people like want do not want him doing this and like he's mm-hmm. afraid of being ousted by the u.s government or removed from his yeah. position so it's like he's trying to do it on his own but it does you get the sense that like this is not the preferred route yes it was I US thought it was, or either government i thought it was surprisingly nuanced in parts but that the overall picture of the overall impression of the movie was it's kind of yeah, clear that it was produced with making Israeli people look like they're in the right and look more conscientious, and, yeah. and the Palestinians Although, looking more violent. The hottest person in the movie is her. Her is mistress. Ellen Bernstein's, uh the guy she's sleeping with. Yeah, who's played by an Italian guy, but he's in, a Palestinian in the movie. Sure, and and none of the old crusty Israeli ministers are very attractive. So. No. That's that's very true. In my perspective, the real hero of this movie is the Alan titties. Also in this movie, a oh. lot. So I actually I, I liked this movie fine. Like it was it it's was fine. it was short. It moved at a good pace. It had a good plot. It did have propaganda in it, but it'll hold your attention at least for the entire movie, mm-hmm. which is more than you can say about some of these films. Uh, and yeah. I actually did genuinely like the dynamic between um, Robert Mitchum and Ellen Bernstein. It felt very lived in. It felt very adult because like yes. she has an affair and he finds out, but they like have enough of a history and you can kind mm-hmm. of feel it in their performances that it's not like melodramatic. It feels very real. Yeah. Or it's like, who, do you love him? She's like, no, I, I love you, but he pays attention to me. And I also like that he, uh, <laughs> Robert Mitchum, like, cause there's a sex tape that the, the PL, no, it's the Israeli government makes the sex tape but the plo somehow gets their hands on it through a I, russian agent it was very i was never fully clear um on. but even when 
Robert Mitchum finds out about the sex tape and they're trying to blackmail him for a million dollars, he's just like, no, yeah. I don't have a million dollars. Like, yeah, what, what do you that. want from me? And they're like, we're going to release a sex tape. And he's like, like okay. fine. Yeah. <laughs> like, who cares? I'm not in it. Which I liked that. And yeah, there were like but the interesting tape, bits and pieces. The sex tape makes no sense. Because because it's like right up in their face. So we see the camera early in the movie that shoots mm-hmm. the sex tape and it's in a bookcase and it's stationary. Yeah. And then when we see the footage that was shot, it is someone right next to right Ellen Bernstein in, and the Italian guy. Right up in their faces. Moving around. Yeah. With a handheld camera, so it makes no sense that mm-hmm. that was the footage that was shot. Mm-mm. It's did they forget to shoot that footage, and that's what they had to, at the end of the movie. They were like, "Shit, Probably. we forgot to shoot that." Now so we they use this. They just used the, the footage scene. of the sex scene, yeah, as the sex tape. It seemed like a production error. Yeah, I think that was a mistake. And then, but then it just like the ending was just very strange for me. It just very it, violent. It was a bloodbath. Yeah, just like the PLO comes in. And just kills a bunch of Israeli and Palestinian students. It it it, it felt sort of like a like so it was like a nineties Grisham yeah. movie. So it ended on a note of being like, oh well, it's not all Palestinians' fault, but the people whose fault it is are Palestinians. Yeah, and they are quite violent. <laughs> yes, and they uh, wear weird clothes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's and there was there's a there was a scene where here. the Israeli minister draws a connection between the Holocaust and what the PLO is doing to oh Israel. It's not politically. No. Of its time. From a character and plot perspective, I give this movie a... B minus. But it was, I will say, as a Rock Hudson movie, this was an interesting use of him because he's not really, he's not the main character, Mm -mm. but he does play a really important role. He ultimately, like, saves the ambassador, saves Mitchum's character from the, the Russian or... Palestinian, the Russian is, operative who gets introduced that like yeah, the last assassin of the movie and is important all of a sudden. Sure, who almost shot him earlier, which I like. I did like that. That was tense. It was like, I thought this was this was like an interesting, another interesting move for Hudson. So I was like looking back on all this, like these are really different genres. Also, at the same time, he was doing some westerns, some more romantic movies, yeah, but television. He, he did. Like sci-fi movies, he did. What is like a su- what is the submarine movie? What would that genre be? I say political thriller or just like yeah, cold, submarine Cold War thrillers. Submarine movies are a genre. Of yeah. A mystery movie. He did a disaster movie. He did a exploitation film. Like mm-hmm. he was, and, and not all of this. I'm sure. Like his career wasn't doing great, but he did pick some interesting projects yeah, and got into some interesting movies. And so this, I think we were ready to kind of shit on this period of his life a little more than we ended up doing, but he, he made some interesting moves in the back half of his career. And I do think like seconds is genuinely great. Yes, for sure. I would recommend mirror cracked (laughs) again, if you're in Blake (laughs) Edwards, darling Lily. And I I would say avalanche. You're right. Avalanche is fun to bad movie night. Yeah. That's pretty fun. The ambassador is not horrible. It's it's a competently made movie. Mm-hmm. Just it it has its it has its own faults. Yeah. So it's about are, as much propaganda as any American mainstream political thriller. That's, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I did. I I did enjoy watching these movies more than more than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. I think you know in the the second episode we talked about a lot of crap that he was producing just 
being typecast as oh i wasn't just bored out of my mind right except for maybe ice station zebra sometimes but (laughs) fair of just like the universal everyman hunk It, it seems like now he knew hudson knew what like what worked for him he knew where his strengths lied in terms of casting and it seems like hollywood now that he was outside of universal's like out of universal's thumb like enough directors knew what to do with him that would make it interesting. So sometimes there would be like what felt like stunt casting, but in sort of a fun way, like pretty little maids or he is going to be the box office draw. So cast him in avalanche alongside Mia Farrow, or he'll be the post like plastic surgery mm-hmm. in a sci-fi, like twilight zone, twilight zone movie in seconds. Like mm-hmm. that's really cool. So it was it was exciting to see that he got so much variety in his career when I feel like a theme of our previous episodes was just about a lot of a lot of typecasting that mm-hmm. happened to him in that first 12 years or so of his career. So those were the films of Rock Hudson. I think we're going to mm-hmm. close out with talking a little bit about what happened after The Ambassador and just kind of wrap up yeah, his life story. Let's do it. So go to break. Talk about that. Lola, dear, you know there are really only two things I dislike about you. Really? What are they? Your face. Thank you. We have talked about every Rock Hudson movie we're going to talk about and ended with The Ambassador, which was his last film. And pretty soon after The Ambassador wrapped up, he, in June 5th of 1984, he received an AIDS diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And also probably a liver cancer diagnosis um, He that had been exacerbated by a lot of drinking. Yeah. And he, he kept working after his diagnosis. Most prominently, he did um, a couple episodes of Dynasty, which was a huge show at the time, like a primetime soap opera. And while he was on Dynasty, he shared a kiss with Linda Evans, and there was a lot of controversy around that because once it was public knowledge that he had AIDS, people were up in arms about, like, did he give AIDS to Linda Evans? Like, that was very irresponsible. There was a lot of confusion about the AIDS crisis, obviously, during the 80s, and he bore the brunt of a lot of that, unfortunately. Or a lot of the malice about about AIDS victims in the 80s. I also put in your little summary that he visited the White House. And it was definitely after he knew that he had AIDS mm-hmm. that he visited the White House um, and met Nancy and, um, you know, what's his name? Ronnie? Roy. Ronald Reagan. Why did I just forget Ronald Reagan's first name? Oh, I thought you were joking. No, I totally forgot his first name. Oh. Who even is Ronald Reagan? I've never heard of him. Yeah, I'm not problematic like is you he are. <laughs> um, yeah, he actually met them and like shook their hands and was in the White House during a time when like Reagan was actively not acknowledging the AIDS crisis and there was a lot of misinformation spreading, a lot of anim- animosity towards the queer community. So to s- sort of set the stage for what happened with, at the end of his life, uh, a couple characters to bring up. There is Mark Christian, who 
1983, he and Hudson got together. He was 30 years old, which is pretty ancient by Rock Hudson standards. He was a bit of a Leo DiCaprio. Yeah, uh, but he it was like a sugar daddy relationship mm-hmm. where Hudson was just kind of lavishing stuff on him. He was an aspiring artist who didn't have like a regular job. It seemed sort of typical of Rock's yeah, the- relationships. He gets... I think you brought up, he gets painted as sort of like this villain of the end of Hudson's life, but just, it seems like it could have been any of the boys that Hudson had. Yeah. And Christian, he definitely tried to like, after rock Hudson dies, he definitely wasn't great, but a lot of people seem like they might not have been great. It's, it's confusing. And, and I, and I am not convinced by much. I think the chapters about this in the rock Hudson biography are, the weakest from mm-hmm. a kind of ethical standpoint, because <laughs> mm-hmm. maybe Mark Christian, he might not have been a great guy, but the amount of like hearsay and piling on the book does to portray him as like a cartoon villain just seems weird and not very biographer. He, yeah. especially like there's all this stuff about, Oh, he Brock Hudson, like bought him all this stuff and he went on shopping sprees and all this. And, and like, you're reading this and like, A, I'm sure Hudson wanted to spend money on him. That sure. seems like he just did that with all of his lovers because they mm-hmm. were like young and didn't have money. And B, he was worth, he was still worth like $20 million yeah. at this point. So like the movie portrays it as him like taking huge advantage of Rock Hudson for getting right. Mark Christian's car fixed. And I'm like, who cares? It's like a drop in the bucket for him. Like, right. like whatever. Like, he lives in a castle. There's just so much implication around all of Mark Christian's behaviors that occurs in these chapters that I couldn't help but take the portrayal with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. That's um, fair. So Mark Christian, he is one of the characters towards the end of his life. The other one, so George Nader and Mark Miller, who both knew about Hudson's diagnosis, were mm-hmm. like Hudson's besties. Mm-hmm. for like decades they met i think in the 50s 50s yeah and um they were both gay they were a couple nader and miller they were both actors and nader later became a writer and miller was also personal secretary to rock starting in the 70s these were the two that we mentioned a couple weeks ago that they would go out and carry briefcases mm-hmm. when they would go out to dinner together yeah and nader and miller were named the primary beneficiaries of Hudson's will when mm-hmm. Hudson, after Hudson got his diagnosis and a previous boyfriend, Tom Clark, was taken out of the will. There are accusations on both sides as far as, and I don't think we're going to be able, we're not going to be able to parse this out, but like Hudson, mm-hmm. he his health was flagging. He was becoming less lucid. And there are like Tom Clark and Mark Christian and George Nader and Mark Miller all had claims on his estate Mm -hmm. and so there was a lot of he said he said going around Mm -hmm. and people think that maybe nader and miller kind of manipulated hudson to change his will robert osborne Mm -hmm. our gay icon robert osborne who is like the world's biggest rock hudson stan thinks that the will was manipulated Mm -hmm. which the implication there was that nader and miller did it but he didn't i from what i saw from that he didn't give any evidence. So it's like, it's hard yeah. to tell what happened. It, it, it feels like a lot of this, I don't know, is like drumming up drama when there might not have been that much or like drumming up controversy about the relationships that 
was probably a little bit unfounded. It seems like an easy thing to do when there's like a rich person dying and um, mm-hmm. people stand to benefit a lot that their actions are going to take on a new shape. Yeah. And I don't, yeah, I agree. I don't fully believe all of this. Yeah. But and it does make sense that the beneficiaries of Hudson's will being that he was single at the time were his two best friends who knew about his diagnosis, who right. were helping take care of him, who he'd right. known for decades. So it, it doesn't like, it makes sense that like Mark Christian wasn't in the will or, right. and that Tom Clark was taken out of the will because he wasn't in the picture anymore. So Hudson, he, in August of 1984, he went to Paris to receive an experimental AIDS treatment and eventually came back to the United States, was in Dynasty, and then in July of 1985, he went back to Paris to continue receiving the treatment, Mm -hmm. but he was kind of too far gone at this point. So he wasn't able to receive the treatment, and he was doing really poorly. And in July, July 25th, 1985, Rock Hudson's French publicist announced that Hudson had AIDS and confirmed that he had had the disease for at least a year. And probably possibly announced that Hudson had been cured of AIDS. Yeah, that was weird. Um, the publicist said she was misquoted, but the news had broken mm-hmm. that uh, the entire world now knew that Hudson had AIDS, which another con- controversy arose from this because Hudson not doing well, possibly a non of consciousness, not super lucid. Mm-hmm. And this is just speculation, but there's a question like, would he have consented to this news being made public. I feel like yes. It's possible. It's also possible he wanted to present his illnesses like liver cancer. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I do get the sense that like in at the end of his life, he, from his actions and the statements that I, however lucid he was, that it was in good faith. And I, I think it was sort of like a, it seemed like a shedding of like finally pulling down the curtain mm-hmm. on things and like a relief to yeah. end his life, like not holding this as a secret. I guess I'm like, my, my interpretation. Yeah. I'm a little more skeptical that it was fully his decision, but like also we have no way of knowing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I did not read anything that convinced me that there is any definitive answer to mm-hmm. any of these questions, but he was, so he was in Paris. He was moved back to um, UCLA and Tom Clark actually came back in the picture to be his caretaker. Mm-hmm. So Hudson, he just sort of deteriorated. He had, you know, visitors show up that we've talked about from his past. Elizabeth Taylor was there, Roddy McDowell, Gene mm-hmm. Simmons, and then Elizabeth Taylor and Shirley MacLaine also co-sponsored a benefit for AIDS mm-hmm. in L.A. And another controversy, there was a statement that was read that was supposedly from Rock Hudson, but most mm-hmm. people, and I think this is probably true, that Hudson did not write it. He was not in any condition. Like maybe At this point, no. Maybe someone dictated to it and he like signed off on it or something, but there was a question of could he have composed the statement. But the fundraiser, it raised a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Taylor decided to establish the National AIDS Research Foundation, yeah. um, which Hudson contributed $250,000 to, which yeah. again, question of how much he was able to consent to this, who was controlling his bank account, we don't know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I don't know. Okay. I just, I, I take this at, at face value. Like this is a generous donation by a man wanting to do some right. Okay. I don't know. I don't 
I don't know what my hesitation is. To- it's hard for me to believe that someone who was so private his whole life would be this open and become an advocate in the last months of his life, especially as he was hiding it from all professional circles and then mm-hmm. to have it change of heart while he was declining like that. I don't know. I, th- I think there's, I don't think there's a definitive answer, but mm-hmm. I maintain skepticism about all of this. Yeah, that's fair. He uh, died on October 2nd, 1985. I think uh, the book mentioned that Elizabeth Taylor was like holding his hand or was like, it was okay. hugging him at the point of death. Like, the book, it was an interesting feint where uh-huh. it was a long block quote of a like tabloidy mm-hmm. press release. So I don't know the extent to which any of that stuff was true. Because the book was basically saying like, I'm not co-signing this. I'm just plopping this in here. Sure. But he, he died and then his funeral was attended by... People that he had been working with for, for you, decades. Yes. Yeah. And Elizabeth Taylor, she, she seemed a, great. She was a cool lady. She was there until the end, even mm-hmm. if she wasn't necessarily like at his bedside when he mm-hmm. died, she might, she might've been, she may not have been, but she, I, apparently two of her secretaries died, had died of AIDS too, mm-hmm. or like both of them had HIV and one killed himself and one died mm-hmm. of AIDS. And so she was like, gung-ho about being an advocate and like Shirley MacLaine to Doris Day a little that's interesting I I think we might have misremembered how this played out when we started this series because I think we got had the impression that Doris Day was a little more supportive you mean supportive at the end of his life yeah well I think she was like a continuous character like throughout the 70s like she was good friends with him yes and they had obviously a great working relationship too in the 60s but yeah, Doris Day, yeah. she, so after Hudson received his AIDS diagnosis, he did a promo announcement with Day for a show of hers, a pro-animal series called Doris Day's Best Friends, which aired from, I think, 1985 to 1986 on a Christian Broadcast Network. <laughs> and after Hudson died, Doris Day said to one of, like, either Miller or Nader, that she couldn't attend the funeral because she just couldn't handle it, like implied that it would Mm -hmm. be too much for her. But I have to wonder if her attending the funeral would have imperiled her relationship with CBN. Yeah, I would believe that. So I don't know. That doesn't look good for her, but yeah, I would buy that. But Hudson's death, it was like a huge eye-opener for America. I mean, we talked um, in the Zero Patience episode about how and the band plays on frames his death as like the moment that mainstream America mm-hmm. really started taking AIDS seriously mm-hmm. because um, it wasn't just a random anonymous gay person who right. died. It so, was yeah. someone who had been famous for being like the epitome of straight maleness mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. masculinity for decades, mm-hmm. mostly in the fifties and sixties, but I don't, I don't, I don't want to like focus too much on this at the end because like I, part of the reason why we did this series going back to like the genesis of it was that we wanted to talk about him as a, an actor mm-hmm. and not so much about him as a tragic figure. Right. But it is at the same time important to acknowledge that like when people think of Rock Hudson and the impact that he's had on 
Hollywood, one of the first things we think of is, unfortunately, his death. Yes. And just because it was such an important catalyst for a lot of change, especially in, like you said, how the media was portraying it and like how much attention the uh, AIDS crisis was getting. Um, it's like Ronald Reagan. I remembered his name this time, but mm-hmm. not to bring him up again too much. He acknowledged AIDS only after Rock's death mm-hmm. because he had been a recent guest in the White House. Also, Rock Hudson made a bunch of movies that people should check out if they haven't Yeah, already. truly. Some of his work with Douglas Sirk was great. The melodramas were great. Yes. Giant seconds. Fantastic. The Doris Day movies. And, you know, even some of the clunkers have their charms. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. But overall, he has a a filmography that's worth exploring. I'm, I'm glad we did this. It was very interesting. It was mm-hmm. it, it was interesting also just watching movies change over the course of mm-hmm. these decades. Like watching them is sort of a crash course in how Hollywood was evolving during the time, <laughs> which was yeah, very really interesting was. to watch. Yeah, I'm I'm very glad that we did this series. It, it was really great to dig into an actor's career and see how he changed as well, not just how movies change. Like, uh, getting to appreciate how different directors were able to use him well while others weren't, Mm -hmm. and seeing the payoffs of taking risks with an actor like this. I think before I had watched any Rock Hudson movies, I thought he was just sort of a not very good actor who didn't work in very good projects and was just kind of known for being handsome. Mm -hmm. And that is definitely... There are some movies that are like that, sure. but he had an interesting career. It also made me think, I know, I don't remember which episode I brought this up in, but it compared him to like movie stars of today that, you know, might get typecast as just the, the hunky leading man who actually have a lot more under their belts. I was thinking of like a Brad Pitt type in the like 90s or 2000s where sure, there's going to be some movies where he's just cast because... He's hot, and that's going to be the mm-hmm. the point of that role. But then there's going to be some crazy swings with interesting payoffs, like casting him in 12 Monkeys or something like Meet Joe Black. There was a lot of Hudson's career that it's easy to just paint him as the bland hunk, but then you get Giant in the middle of all of that. Like mm-hmm. you said, it's, it's really cool. Yeah. I, w- I want to do this again with... Not a ton of actors, because this is a lot of movies. Yeah. But <laughs> we sleep here in the dark with you. That was Rock Hudson. The later years. The later years. Closing the book on Rock Hudson. The series. Through the ages. Yes. We will be talking about not Rock Hudson next time. Correct. Next episode. Back to your usual programming. So they say. These movies. Are we going to do that? I think they did have everything. I think truly. We jumped around a lot. After watching like 40 movies. Yeah. yeah, These movies have everything. And Action. Start walking. <laughs> They've got mustaches, They've flannels. Got Elizabeth Taylor in her caftan years. That's right. Kim Novak yeah. showing some cleavage. There was a lot of a lot of boobs 
They actually. Get, yeah, these got these movies got some boobies. Got some boobies. Ellen Bernstein boobies. That, yeah, that was that was shocking. I don't know why that was shocking to to see. <laughs> they have like four by two blocks mm. of styrofoam substituting Correct. for snow. Correct. Um, Ernest Borgnine doing a Russian accent, more or less, sort of. They've got bacchanalias. That's right. Wine stomping. Mm-hmm. Um, lot too much teens having sex with teachers. Porn stashes. Angie Dickinson. Hieronymus Bosch. <laughs> Continuity errors. So many wonderful things. Yep. They've got Blake Edwards being Blake Edwards. Stock Crazy scientists. Stock footage. <laughs> got a lot of B-roll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was great. Thanks for coming on this Rock Hudson journey with us. I can I want to summarize with my like top picks. Kev's top picks. Go for it. It's like do go watch All That Heaven Allows. Mm-hmm. Do make sure you have watched Seconds. And do make sure you have watched Giant. Those are my top three. Okay. What would you put? I guess I would just add to that list. I mm-hmm. would say Written on the Wind. Mm-hmm. Throw that mm-hmm. in there. If you're yeah. doing Bad Movie Night, mm-hmm. throw on Avalanche or Pretty Maids all in a row. Uh, and go watch watch Mirror Cracked. It's a it's a good little movie. And I would you know, I would maybe also add Send Me No Flowers. I did think that was. Oh wait, yeah, and all three. Honestly, just watch all, all three. three of the. Yeah. Like I'm not I'm not saying they're like top tier, but I enjoyed all of them. That that was fun. Those are fun. Yeah. Pillow Talk, Lover Come Back, Send Me No Flowers. Yeah, we'll close the book on that. Okay. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Cinema Very Gay. Uh, follow us on Letterboxd. Keep up with what we've been watching. And come back in a couple weeks and we'll be back to our usual uh, queer movie programming. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.